is Jolene Jackson. I'm with Moms for America, where liberty begins at home. And when we have these classes in the evening time, it's not only Moms for America, it is Dads for America, it is Families for America. So thank you so much for joining in today. I have been involved with the Cottage Meeting Project for over 10 years. Women gathering together, men and women in the evenings gathering together to come to learn the great stories and miracles of America and uh, principles of the Constitution. And it's been transformative in my life, transformed me as a mother, changed the way I taught my children, it changed my husband and I's marriage, it put us on a, a path that has we've been literally able to teach the Constitution together as husband and wife around the country. And um, it's been so fun to see as our kids are getting older now and most of our kids are out of the home to see the fruits of uh, uh, what it looks like in a child for them to be taught these things for 10, 12, 13, 14 years. So uh, for all those that were on the class last week, we were in Hawaii. Our uh, oldest son who's in the NBA said, mom at the end of the season, Detroit Pistons didn't make the playoffs clearly. He said, when the season ends, I want to take everyone on a trip. I wanted to all go to Maui. So, you know, we, we all said, okay, let's do it. And so it was so much fun to spend, you know, about eight, nine days together and just to hear, you know, what they found interesting and to hear them talking about the issues of the day and to hear them talk about their little faith and feelings about God and, and how they all work. And they, they um, are, are really I'm pretty astounded that they don't ask for more money than they do. And, and so I, I just have to think at some of the fruits of trying to teach these kids, these principles of, of faith and freedom and self-reliance and capitalism and, um, you know, godly, godly teachings. And, and I, I'm making my kids sound uh, out to be perfect and, and they're not. But I'm, I'm starting to see when you teach these children and grandchildren these things consistently, and even if you just start today, that God will reward your efforts as you are consistent to do that. And it was sweet to kind of see these kids, you know, talking about um, the abortion issue. We, we, the girls particularly want to talk a lot about that around the pool. And, and, you know, as, as they're taught these principles, these principles that you're learning, and then you somehow go home and weave these principles into your teachings or into maybe a little text devotional you send to your adult kids, they are able to recognize the absurdity of some of the notions that are being peddled right now, uh, Black Lives Matters or critical race theory or what's going on in the courts right now with that leaked um, opinion brief. And you might, uh, uh, two weeks ago, me and Kayla uh, did a podcast with Moms for America. It was how to raise biracial kids, something like that. But she talks a lot about, you know, hearing these notions of critical race theory in her university classes and how she was able to refute that and know in her mind the ridiculousness of that because of the, the principles of liberty that she was taught in the home. And so um, it was. It was a. It was a joy to kind of be able to see these kids because they're not under my roof, and I don't really know how susceptible they are to some of you know the social media uh, rattlings and and the university rattlings. 
Okay. So before we get any further, normally I teach with my husband, my sweetheart, Al. He's going to be joining us in just a few minutes. Al, um, for our church, holds a position of leadership called a stake president. And he had a, like a three-hour meeting tonight, an hour or so away. So um, when the meeting is over at 10, he's going to join us. He's going to teach principle number 12. Now, this this position that Al has in our, our church, it's just voluntary. He doesn't get paid for it. Just like with Moms for America. Poor guy, he doesn't get anything for it. <laughs> he just does it because he loves me and he knows it makes me happy. So, uh, you know, and that's, and that is some of the result of me gathering together in my cottage meeting and learning these, these principles and ideas, coming home, teaching them to my children and to my husband, and then the spirit of, of what I was learning got within him. And, and so I just love to see, you know, his service. He's got a servant heart. And that's, I dare say, everyone on this call is probably wired that exact same way or else you wouldn't be here tonight. So we are on lesson number six of the 5,000 year leap. After tonight's lesson, we will be halfway through this 12 week series where we are studying these 28 principles. We'll be studying principles number 11, 12, and 13, in case you didn't get the memo, 11, 12, and 13 uh, this week. And of course, you can just you know go through and read the book, but I highly recommend getting the student edition where you fill in the blanks and you have more space to take notes. And as you fill in the blanks, you're you're convincing yourself that someday you will be able to teach this lesson. And it's as easy as going through with a, a group of uh, people in your home and reading it, filling in the blank, stopping every couple of paragraphs and discussing, well, what modern day events can we liken to this principle? Or we're not following this principle, hence we have this problem. And you begin to teach each other and share each other's experiences. So these 20 ideas, these ingredients, these principles that our founders gleaned when they were establishing this land, where did they glean these ideas from? They mostly gleaned them from the Bible, uh, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. They studied Moses and his first form of, of representative government. And the people were really ruled by the voice of the people. He made captains over 10, over 50, over 100, over 1,000 families, and only the difficult problems he heard. And then they studied the Anglo-Saxons. And they also, and, and they believe, as many historians do, that these Anglo-Saxons were actually descendants of the Lost Tribes because their governments were almost identical to uh, some of the tribes of Israel, Moses's people's law, common law. Our founders also studied ancient thinkers, Cicero, and maybe more contemporary thinkers, maybe 100 years before their time, uh, John Locke, Algernon Sidney, talked about him last week, uh, Blackstone, William Blackstone, Montesquieu. And so they, they, they were all reading out of the same books. And so they were all gleaning these truths. And so when they came together and wrote Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence, and, and uh, four months in the Constitutional Convention, they were really able to do something miraculous because even though the, you know, some were wealthy, some were farmers, but they were all self-studied men and they were reading out of the same materials. And so, you know, I hope you're beginning to see as we have studied these principles, we're almost halfway through the principles, 
that these principles are really the solutions for what is ailing society. And I hope that you're beginning to see that as you, as you, I, you know, you've heard me say this, I, I want you to memorize these principles because they'll be your best friends in, in your hour of need when there's a lot of conversation and anger and anxiety and emotionalism attached to some of the issues that are going on right now. You will be able to elevate the conversation as you share some of these principles. And, um, you know, it's so interesting. Last week's principles eight, nine, and 10 were so applicable to uh, the abortion conversation that so many are having right now. With that, that opinion brief being leaked out, that, that draft copy, you know, implying that we have at least five justices that want to overturn Roe v. Wade. And um, just this very morning, and it's shameful because all the addresses of the justices have been leaked to the public as well. We've never seen that in the history of our country, nor have we seen a brief been leaked like we're seeing now. And, and I definitely think it's the enemies of freedom that are wanting to incite chaos in our country and fury. And this morning, uh, you know that show, The Handmaiden Tale of those sexually oppressed women, sexual servitude women? Well, uh, they had a showing of these handmaiden tales in front of Amy Coney Barrett's home in, um, I believe it's Virginia this morning. And I think, bless her heart, I remember two years ago, um, those handmaidens, when, when Con Amy Coney Barrett was being put forth to be a justice, uh, they came and did a protest in front of the Supreme Court in October of 2020. And actually Moms for America was at the Capitol doing a press conference in support of Amy Coney Barrett. So we knew it was about 50 of these women, they wear their bonnets and their capes. So about eight to 10 of us walked on over after the press conference and there they were in front of the Supreme Court and they're silent and they're sober and they're angry. And so we didn't quite know what to do. We had all these cute little signs. So we, as Moms for America, we just started singing patriotic songs. God bless America. And those little handmade tail gals were just shooting darts at us. They were so angry because we were uh, interrupting their very somber protest mood. And there was a bunch of cameras there. And we saw the cameras because we just kept it up. I mean, I think we almost sang for like an hour. My voice was hoarse. We did. Yeah, yeah. Were you there, Maria? Yes, remember that. I loved it. By the end of the protest, all the cameras had turned from the handmaidens to the moms for America because it was such a stark contrast between this dark, heavy, angry crowd and this. I just think we were spirit filled. We were having a good time. The spirit of that was those songs got within us. And so, you know, these are interesting times that we're living in, but I hope you could see how those principles that, that all men are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and these inalienable rights, that's principle number eight that we talked about last week. An inalienable right is a God-given right that he gives you to help us keep his commandments, all right? So we're hearing so much, and, and Blackstone said that, you know, these rights are protected, they're found, and they're protected in revealed divine law. Now, that was principle number nine last week, and the, uh, Blackstone said, he said, this revealed divine law is holy scripture. 
So, you know, when I'm hearing so many defenders of the abortion uh, right now talk about it's their right, it's never been a right. If you, if you go to the Holy Scripture to, uh, you know, to kill an unborn baby and women and, and, you know, defenders of abortion will say, well, it's my right to my body. Uh, I, I can do whatever I want in the privacy of my body. And that's certainly not what God's law says. He said, you know, we have a right to privacy as long as we're not using our bodies for immoral or ungodly purposes. And, it, and it's, it's clear to that. It, it, it's clear. As I went to the scriptures, there's almost over a hundred scriptures that would refute this idea of abortion. And, and mostly I thought of that one in Psalms, children are a heritage unto the Lord. And, and most obviously in Exodus uh, commandment number six, we know life is sacred to God. Thou shalt not kill. And so it's such an interesting time right now as people are getting all confused about what, what their rights are. Even the president said something ridiculous because he's a child of God. He, he has a right, you know, to defend abortion kind of thing. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But my husband, Al, was, uh, gave me a podcast. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Jason Whitlock. He's on the Blaze uh, Network. And he has a podcast called Fearless. And he had a guest, and her name was uh, Shamika Michelle. Have you heard of her, Shamika Michelle? She's an author, a contributor on Fox News and Newsmax. And she, um, she's, this was just a few days ago, and I've seen this uh, repeated throughout the social media because it was very powerful what she said. She said as a young girl, about 22, she found herself pregnant and didn't know what to do. So she went to the doctor and she said, the doctor lied to me. He said, oh, it, it's just a clump of cells. And so Shamika said, I never saw the heartbeat of that child. So I took the life of that child because of a lie that the doctor told me. And she's not blaming the doctor, but you know, when you're young and vulnerable, when he said, it's not a life, it's just a clump of cells. And Shamika is a, a black woman. And she said, um, she said, out of the 60 million abortions that have occurred since Roe versus Wade was passed in 17, 1973, um, 60 million abortions have occurred and 30 million of those have been black babies. And she said, isn't it interesting Black Lives Matters is very much a staunch supporter of abortion you know, and repeating their mantra, Black Lives Matters, but she said, oh, clearly Black unborn lives do not matter because 30 million out of those 60 million in the last 50 years of abortions have been Black children. So isn't it interesting? There's 320 million in the United States. That's our population, give or take a few million. So there's been 60 million children aborted. That would have made our population, if abortion hadn't been legalized, 380 million. So we essentially wiped out 16% of our population because of a legalized abortion in the last 50 years. And she said, look, we need to stop lying as modern women. 60 million babies aborted in the last 50 years is not a result of women not having a choice or not being in control of their bodies or being raped or molested. 60 million abortions is a result, she said, of us being sexually immoral, being out of control, using abortion as a method of birth control. And I have seen this firsthand 
recently, as I, I mentioned last week with my daughter's little former roommate. Women using it as a crutch to be irresponsible. That is what 60 million aborted babies is about. So she said, we need to stop lying as modern women when we say we don't have a choice. And I just thought, you know, that was so compelling because that's certainly not what the other side is saying. But we know that we've never had a right. God has never given us a choice to kill his unborn children. It's against God's law. He, we know how God feels about children. We know how he feels about sanctity of life. Now, our founding fathers based this government on a republic, which was going to be the voice of the people, because they knew that the best way, as they studied throughout history and in scriptures, the best way to have a strong government and good relationships with God's children is a republic. But let the voice of the people, you know, dictate their laws. But he said, but our founders knew that, that the only way that this kind of government could exist is if they based it on God's law, like the supreme you know, creator of the universe. He knows what is best for us. He created us. So we have to base a sub-government, a, a republic on God's law. But the only way that that, that will work is if the people who are governing themselves remain morally virtuous and, and strong. Okay. So this is principle one and two. So I, you, you're hearing me. I'm just going to spout off these principles. And the founders knew that the only way people remain morally strong and virtuous is if they put virtuous leaders into office, because they're the ones that are going to make the laws that are going to be aligned to God's law. And the only way you're going to get the, the, the you know, the leaders of the country the elected officials and the people to be virtuous and morally strong is if you're allowed to be religious and to teach religion. And that's principle number four. And remember Benjamin Franklin said the five universal points of religion that need to be taught in schools to our children is that there is a God and he has a moral code. There is a right and there's, there's a wrong and we're going to be accountable for how we treat one another. And we're going to have to stand before God. And, um, and so they wanted those precepts to be taught in the schools because that would keep people looking up to the God and studying his word uh, that our founder said was contained in divine law, scripture and, and principle five. So all these principles and we have quotes, every principle, there are quotes from our founding fathers saying why they felt this to be the case. So as you're trying to defend, you know, uh, um, the right, uh, I mean, for these little babes not to be aborted, you can weave in these principles. Now, principle five says that our creators knew, our, our founders knew that, that we were all created by God. Therefore, even if you don't believe in God, you are going to be held responsible and accountable to him and his laws. And so uh, we have the, you know, as we study these principles, you have the direct quotes from these ancient thinkers and contemporary thinkers and founding fathers. So this week, we're going to study the, um, the 11th principle, 12th principle, and the 13th principle. So I hope you all have your manuals. I hope you're, you're, you've got your little bookmarks. You're memorizing these little principles. Let's turn to the 11th principle. I took a long time getting into uh, this principle because I just want to make sure I was going to be arriving. But I just think that some of the events that are going on right now 
these principles are so pertinent. They'll be our armor, they'll be our tools, our weapons that we can defend um, godly law against. So the 11th principle says the majority of the people may alter or abolish a government which has become tyrannical. All right, our founders believe that. So what does that look like today? How do we alter our government? Well, I think the most obvious thing is elections. We, we, we go into the voting booth every two to four years. And if we don't like what's going on, we elect these people out. And this is why honest elections are so critical in us changing and altering governments that have become oppressive, that are forcing us to do things that we know are wrong. You know, another way we can alter the, uh, the government is to restore the constitution. All right. If, if we restore the Constitution and we learn how to do that in the Healing of America seminars and they're all online, the recordings are online, you, you get these four little booklets They're Those little booklets are just like gold to me. But as you as you restore the Constitution, it will alter kind of our current government that is looking more and more over the last many decades like a democratic socialistic form of government. We don't, we don't want that. We want a Republic. And so, you know, the founders were very well acquainted. Look there, Philadelphia, 1776. They were very well acquainted with the abusive kingly autocratic government that was being imposed upon them from England. Uh, these injuries that were being imposed upon them as colonists. And Thomas Jefferson, he wrote this concept Principle number 11, he embedded in the Declaration of Independence. And it says exactly this idea in the Declaration of Independence, he says, which captured really the feelings of Americans uh, during that 17 to 1770s. He said, uh, the governments, and this is written in, in, the in the Declaration 1776, the governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. But mankind, when they are disposed to suffer, while these evils are sufferable, it is, it, it, it is let me get this right, then, let me, let me read this. Mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they have been accustomed to. So we get kind of apathetic. We don't like it, but we just kind of suffer through. But when after a long train of abuses and usurpations have occurred, and they are reduced to absolute despotism, despotism meaning cruel and op oppressive power. It is their right, it says this in our declaration, it is their right, their duty to throw off government and to provide new guards for their suits, for their future security. And John Locke, that English philosopher who lived, who was born in 1632, who our founder studied from England, he, he essentially said the same thing in some of his famous uh, essays concerning the government. Now, John Locke said the power to do this rests in the majority. OK, so only a majority of the people can authorize an appeal to alter or abolish a particular establishment of government through the will and determination of the majority. So Locke said there cannot there can't be a, a right of revolt in a minority, if there's just an individual or a group or a small minority. But being an impossible, but being an impossible, it is impossible for one or a few oppressed men to disturb the government. But he said, 
if these legal acts are extended to a majority of people who feel that there has been mischief and oppression, now I'm just kind of reviewing uh, Locke's words here, but here's the actual quote. If a majority believe there has been mischief and oppression and, and the majority seems to be threatened by them, then they are persuaded in their consciences that their laws and their estates and liberties and lives and even their religions perhaps are in danger, how they will be hindered from resisting a legal force used against them, I cannot tell. So he's saying they are in, uh, they have a right to do this. If you read the whole quote, you very much get, get that. And that's possibly, you know, this idea, this notion is, is the founders, you know, read John Locke and they realized, you know, that when the majority believes that there has been oppression and mischief, it is in their rights to rise up and alter and abolish a government. And, you know, I, I think maybe that was some of the feeling and premise behind January 6th, um, a year and a half ago. Uh, I don't know if any of you have watched the new Dinesh D'Souza documentary that he talks about, you know, the election fraud. Uh, and and um, if you have, let us know what you thought about it. I, I watched about 10 minutes of it and fell asleep because I watched it at midnight. It's never a good time to watch a documentary. But, you know, my husband and I, we were there January 6th. We were there. And, um, you know, we didn't show up in Washington, D.C. to overturn the government, but we knew that there had been mischief and oppression of our, our boat. And so, you know, I believe there was almost, a, I think there was a million people there. I've lived in Washington, D.C. almost 20 years. I've been, you know, seen a lot of these protests. There were more people there than I've ever seen in the over 20 years I've lived in this area. And so I feel like, you know, we were there just wanting to put our elected officials on notice that there had been mischief and oppression and we have a right to petition the government for uh, our grievances. And obviously there were a few bad players that, you know, I don't even think they broke into the Capitol. I think the police led them in the Capitol, but even so they could have done so much more damage than they did. I mean, they could have slashed and diced and spray painted and graffitied and what were they doing? It looked like they were on the tour taking little pictures, you know, of themselves. So, you know, I, I it's, it's interesting in the Washington Post today, almost every single day in the Washington Post, there's an article about January 6th. And this man who runs the National Archives chief, he, he's talking about the worst day of his life. Can you see that it was January 6th? I was so afraid, he said. It was the worst day of my career. It was the worst day of my life. The absolute worst, he was so afraid. Because the people, he said, were so angry. And I'm thinking, wow, I was there. I saw cute grandmothers. I saw mothers in strollers. I saw veterans praying on the steps of the Capitol and singing patriotic songs. It's almost like, well, where were you? Because I was there and that's not quite what I saw. But I think some of this notion is just wired within us that when we see mischief and oppression, we want to rise up and petition our government and let them know. And so uh, under the last little section of Virginia, oh good, Al, hopefully, I wonder if Al is, is soon to get on. Virginia Declaration of Rights. It says, in other words, um, they even in, in the Virginia Assembly, just a, a month or two before Thomas Jefferson wrote this Declaration of Independence, 
they wove this into the Virginia uh, Declaration of Rights. And, and they said that the majority are, are, in other words, the majority are then likely to revolt just as our founding fathers did when their plight has become intolerable. So, you know, at, at this point, this notion, you know, uh, our founders had no confusion in their minds as to the rights and proper recourse when they were approaching this critical uh, decision of 1776. And no doubt, you know, Thomas Jefferson was very instrumental in uh, writing the grievances of Virginia, which he pulled as he wrote the Declaration of Independence. And right there in that paragraph under the Virginia Declaration of Rights, it says that the government uh, is to be instituted for the common benefit and protection and security of the people. And when any government shall be found inadequate and contrary to those purposes, the majority of the community can reform it, alter, or abolish it, right? So they, they said that in the Virginia Declaration of Rights and no doubt Jefferson studying Locke, Jefferson being aware of what Virginia had said wove that into the constitution. So, you know, as we study these principles, this principle number 11 really is, is history. These, these principles in the 5,000 year leap with all the quotes are, you know, they come from inspired men, godly men, and it is history. And I heard today in that Dr. Keith Rose, I liked what he said, history is God's story. When we study history, we see how God deals with his people and how he writes wrongs and the rights that he gives them. And so that is an interesting notion that our founders felt that the majority of the people can definitely rise up and alter and abolish a government which has become tyrannical, oppressive. And, you know, uh, clearly the Washington Post doesn't like what happened on January 6th, but uh, a million people 99.9% were peaceful. And I, I believe some of those people, I saw them uh, around the Capitol. They did not look like patriotic God-fearing. They, they had all black and riot gear and gas masks. And I've been to a lot of patriotic protests and those kind of people are, are not usually, uh, <laughs> are not usually there, or I recognize them to be Antifa in the last few years. I, I clearly can recognize who they are. And so anyways, okay, so that leads us to then our founding fathers. Um, let's see here, that's what principle. They wanted to know what form of government would best preserve the, these God-given godly rights that we were given, these unalien, inalienable rights given from God. What, what type of government? Well, they, they knew it was a republic and the 12th principle talks about the United States of America shall be a republic. All right, so is my Al, Al, are you there? So this is what I'm going to do. I had a feeling if it was going to be late, we're just gonna skip on over to the, because I, I didn't quite study the 12th principle uh, to teach it, to do it justice. So I'm gonna, we're gonna skip to the 13th principle. And when Al comes on, he will talk us through why the founders knew that the Republic was the best form of government to, to base a, a government on self-government on. Okay, so let's just flip over to the 13th principle then. And part of the, the last part of the 12th principle 
tells us that, you know, that the constitution was written, John Adams said, at the time there's only 3 million people in, in America when the constitution was written. But he said that it was written to govern over 300 million because human nature never changes. Man's quest for power and for unrighteous dominion never changes. And this is what the rule of law that they were establishing the constitution was going to do. And sure enough, it's almost like John Adams was prophetic because we have over 300 million and the constitution is wholly adequate to still be able to govern us because it's based on the rule of law, which the 13th principle states, a constitution should be structured to permanently protect the people from the human frailty frailties of their rulers. And Thomas Jefferson said, let no more be said of confidence in man, but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the constitution. So our founding fathers knew that there would be drifts, that popular trends would arise and feelings and emotions would, would possibly sway us from uh, godly laws. And so they wanted to protect our rights and infuse within the constitution, the rule of law on, on the chance that, you know, maybe a charismatic leader could get in and convince people otherwise and, and, and take them away from, from God's law. And so the, our founding fathers had a very tantalizing question during the Constitutional Convention. How can we have an efficient government but still protect the freedom and inalienable rights of people? And so they came up, they, they believed that we need to distrust the power that government comes with, not necessarily disrespect the leaders. The founders actually had more confidence in the people than they did the leaders of the people, especially trusted leaders, even themselves, I think they felt. They felt the greatest danger arises when leaders are so completely trusted that the people don't even feel like they need to watch over them. And Alexander Hamilton, uh, in, there in quote writes, and we know Alexander Hamilton was the Secretary of Treasury under George Washington. And he said that the people are commonly most in danger when the means of injuring their rights are in the possession of those towards whom they entertain the least suspicion. Okay, Alexander Hamilton said that in the Federalist paper number 25. And that's why I thought it was interesting last week, I was in Hawaii and I, I read this quote and I'm like, oh no, Biden couldn't, President Biden couldn't have possibly said that. But were you aware uh, last week, May 5th, last Wednesday, he had some sort of press conference and he, it, it's always interesting when <laughs> he has these conferences, but he actually said the right to abort babies comes because we are children of God because I'm a child of God, I have the right to do what I want to do with my body. All right. So he, he actually invoked our, our, you know, our lineage as children of God that entitles us to kill unborn children. 
it, it, it because I did did anyone hear that quote? Do you remember hearing that? If you Google it, you'll find it. I didn't think it was true. I saw it come through my social media feed, and I'm like, he didn't really say the right to abort babies comes because he's a child of God. And I thought, wow, what a deranged and distorted interpretation of natural law or God's law. And, you know, I, I wouldn't think that that would come from someone like Joe Biden. I mean, he, he looks so harmless. He's just a, like almost a little grandpa, he's 79 years old. He's a father. He's a grandpa. But look what he said. Essentially, because I'm a child of God, I can do whatever I want with my body. And so, you know, sometimes the least suspecting people in power can do the greatest harm. And so um, over 200 years ago through American history has demonstrated, 200 years of American history has demonstrated the wisdom of the fathers in proclaiming a warning against the frailties of human nature. Thomas Jefferson said that it would be a dangerous delusion where a confidence in the men of our choice to silence our fears for the safety of our rights that confidence everywhere is the parent of despotism. Free government is founded in jealousy and not in confidence. It is jealousy and not confidence, which prescribes limited constitutions to bind those down to whom we are obliged to trust with power. All right. And George Washington basically said the same thing. Government is coercive force. And it was very clear to him and all the founders that they looked upon government as a volatile instrument of explosive power, which must be harnessed within the confines of a strictly interpreted constitution where the rule of law lies, all right? So the rule of law is not based on, you know, on our feelings, but it's based on the rule of law. So if God says that you know, it's against his commandments to kill, regardless of what the feelings of our times are, it is always against God's law, right? God has spoken. Government is not reason. It is not eloquence. It is force. And like a fire, it is dangerous. It is a dangerous servant and a fearful master. Okay, so with that, Maria... Al is here. Al, are you here, honey? Yes, yes, I am, sweetheart. <laughs> okay, all right, good. That was perfect timing because I, I jumped ahead to principle 13. But oh, we're going to What happened? Was the meeting so good that you couldn't break away after three hours? No, I wanted to see if you could manage on your own. I barely did. <laughs> I'm sure you did fine. So we're, we're going to bounce back to principle 12. Is that it? Yes. And then you're going to uh, finish up the last part of uh, principle 13. Okay, great, great. Good to be with you all. I, I am going to have to share my screen, Maria. So if you could make me a host, that would be great. But let me start with principle 12, which say, states that the United States of America shall be a republic. And we said that in the beginning of the meeting tonight and the Pledge of Allegiance and to the republic for which it stands. And so there's many reasons that the founders wanted a Republican form of government rather than a democracy. 
So a democracy requires, as we've, as we've discussed extensively, the full participation of the masses of the people in the legislative or decision-making processes of government. Throughout history, this has never worked because the people become too occupied with their daily tasks, such as work, family, recreation, so that they're not gonna properly study the issues, nor will they take the time to participate in extensive hearings before a vote is even taken. So a democracy becomes increasingly unwieldy and inefficient as the population grows. So a republic, on the other hand, governs through elected representatives that can be expanded indefinitely. Just as James Madison, actually John Adams said, the Constitution was written for 3 million people who were part of the American colonies at the time and a document that could take care of 300 million people, which where we are today. And so I'd like to share with you my screen because I'd like to, I want to highlight what James Madison said. And when he was comparing a democracy and a republic, he says, democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found, and this is a key point, incompatible with personal security or the rights of property. And we'll get into that a little bit later. And have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. A republic, by which I mean a government in which the scheme of representation takes place, opens a different prospect and promise the cure for which we are seeking. In a democracy, the people meet and exercise the government in person. In a republic, they assemble and administer by their representative. And a republic may be extended over a large portion. And he goes on to say here, we may define a republic to be a government which derives all its power directly or indirectly from the great body of the people and is administered by persons holding their offices doing pleasure for a limited period or doing good behavior. Key words there. The, the founders envision people serving for a limited period or doing good behavior. And if they exhibit bad behavior, then the people were to throw them out. It is essential to such a government that it be derived from the great body of the society, not from an inconsiderable proportion or favored class of it. In other words, a handful of tyrannical nobles exercising their oppressions. And that's what James Madison wanted us to avoid. Let's talk about the shift that happened in the early 1900s where there, as, as, a, as a textbook highlights, a modern emphasis on democracy. So during the early 1900s, there was an ideological war that erupted and the word democracy became more prominent in the description of our government. And this was all done by design. So 100 people, approximately 100 people, 100 people met in New York in 1905 to form what they called the Intercollegiate Socialist Society, or ISS. These chapters, as you can imagine, were established on more than 60 college campuses across America. It was formed to, quote, throw light on the worldwide movement of industrial democracy known as socialism. 
And they've got socialism in the name. And they adopted a slogan, the ISSS, the ISS did, production for use, not for profit. So one of the things that has come across my desk recently is this whole notion of stakeholder value versus what we traditionally know in capitalists and in capitalism is shareholder value. So let's keep in mind, let's go to the, the great economist Milton Friedman when he talked about the purpose of business. He said, quote, in 1970, this is what he said. He argued that corporate managers should conduct the business in accordance with shareholders' desires, which generally will be able to make us as much money as possible while conforming to the basic rules of society, both those embodied in law. In other words, companies are to create profit, but do it within the bounds that the government has set. Today, corporations are no longer responsible to its shareholders in the traditional way of expanding profits, but instead are accountable to employees, customers, community, and government. These stakeholders are not concerned about your company only for the betterment of society. Joe Biden on the campaign trail indicated that he wanted to end the era of shareholder capitalism. So in other words, so what we're seeing today, and Disney is a wonderful example of that, corporations will now be beholden to what is trending on Twitter about them. And I recently read a report that 90% of the content on Twitter is created by just 10% of the people who are on that platform. And seven out of those 10 consider themselves leftists. Therefore, society is dictating the corporate values of a company instead of the people who've put their livelihoods at risk. And Disney, for one, is paying the price as their shareholder value has gone down because they've been focused mainly on stakeholder value versus shareholder value, which has socialists, communists associated with it. So because of the Soviet revolution in 1921, the word socialism had developed a, a bad reputation. So the ISS changed their name to the League for Industrial Democracy. Imagine that. So the word democracy was supposed to carry the message that through the nationalization of all means of production, which socialism is, and distribution, where the government controls those two means, that defines socialism, the nation's resources would become the property of, quote, all the people. Hence, a democracy, a democracy. So the government at that time was wise to this. And I've noticed that there's been attempts by our government to set the record straight on, on these kind of issues. In fact, there was a manual that was printed, printed in 1928. I looked it up and it's actually in our text where the government defines a republic. But before they do that, they refine, this is, this is what the government defined as a democracy in 1928. It's a government of the masses. Attitudes towards property is communistic negating property rights. Attitude toward law 
is that the will of the majority shall regulate, whether it be based upon deliberation or government by passion, prejudice, and impulse without restraint or regard to consequence. So what does that mean? And Julene highlighted that beautifully before she turned the time over to me. A democracy is based on feelings. And the majority, if they feel a certain way, they can go against what God's law has indicated and move ahead with, with impulse, without restraint or regard to the consequences. And that's the, the government definition of democracy because they in the military, they taught each member in the military after they took the oath to the Constitution, they took a citizenship class. And this came from that manual. So here's, here's what they define as a republic. Authority is derived through the election by the people of public officials best fitted to represent them. And attitudes towards property is respect for laws and individual rights and sensible economic procedure. In other words, it's based on the rule of law. That's a republic. Based on the rule of law, a democracy is based on feeling. And what else do we have here? Avoids the dangerous extreme of either tyranny or mobocracy, which is, which is analogous to what a democracy is, where the majority rules. And I love this last bullet here. It results in statement, statesmanship, liberty, reason, justice, contentment, and progress. Doesn't that sound kinder and, and gentler and easier, easy to administer because it's based on the rule of law? Okay, so back to my beautiful face here. Jolene's still looking intense, but you still, you look good though, sweetie. All right. So let's talk about the attacks. Well, let's talk about the ISS one more. One more. I want to bring up something else. So when Dr. Scalzi went through and looked at the list of those who were now part of this league of industrial democracy, it, he found out that the individuals in, the, in a part of this organization were ended up in prominent and influential positions in politics, the media, publishing houses, radio, academia, teacher training colleges, and the National Council of Churches. So they had infiltrated just about every major center of opinion molding influence. That's exactly what we're experiencing today is the, the adversary of en the enemies of freedom, the adversary owns big tech, they have the media, they've got Hollywood, and they have the college campuses. And so they're able to plant those seeds of socialism and communism, and they're very patient. And so we're, we're bearing the fruit of that today as we, we fight these attacks on the Constitution. So with this historical context presented by Dr. Skousen, the introduction of the word democracy really is an attack on the Constitution. That those same people that made the word democracy popular also considered the Constitution to be outdated and obsolete. And so today, these individuals want it rewritten to reflect the times 
and the people of the day not recognizing the real intent of the U.S. Constitution, which was to, quote, protect the people from the human frailties of their rulers, man's propensity to lust for power. That's why we've, we've talked about this ad nauseum, about the principles of checks and balances, the separation of powers, dividing power among many so that it's not concentrated into one. And so that's, that's really the heart of what the Constitution is all about because the founders didn't even trust themselves because they're human and human nature. We want authority above over everybody below us but we don't want any authority above us and power corrupts as Lord Acton said, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the purpose of the constitution is to define the area in which a public official can serve to his or her utmost ability, but at the same time provide strict limitations to chain him down or her down from mischief. Uh, Julian, did you did you quote Thomas Jefferson? Let there yeah. be let there be said. Let there be not let there. What's no that? more be said. Yes, but but conf, no more be said in confidence in men, but bind him down from mischief with the chains of the Constitution. What that it's such. I'm so excited to talk about that document because it's inspired. The founders knew exactly what they were doing. They wanted the Constitution to protect families and to protect the people from a runaway federal government. And the best way to do that is to make sure that the federal government's responsibilities are few and defined, and then they would leave everything up to the states. So that's why the Constitution will never be considered obsolete. The Constitution is all about providing freedom from abuse by those in authority which is the real genius of the document as it was designed to control something which has not changed and will not change and that's human nature. So to close here, as Madison indicated, I believe there are more instances of the abridgment of the freedom of the people by gradual and silent encroachments of those in power than by a violent and sudden usurpation. We don't see that today. And like I indicated before, planting those seeds, being patient, infiltrating those mediums of opinion, and slowly but surely, you get to change the feelings and thoughts of people. And you start in the education process. You start planting these seeds of socialism. Abraham Lincoln said, the philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation is the philosophy of government in the next. And James Madison goes on to say, this danger ought to be widely, widely guarded against. And he said, when erosion occurs, we must act quickly. We must act quickly when it happens. As he, and Madison said this, he said, it is proper to take alarm at the first experiment on our liberties. We hold this prudent jealousy to be the first duty of all citizens and one of the noblest characteristics of the late revolution that they just went through. The free men of America, they didn't wait till usurp power had strengthened itself by exercise and entangled the questions and precedents. They saw all the consequences of government abuses and the principle 
and they avoided the consequences by denying the principles on which the abuses were based. And Madison goes on to close by saying, we reverse, we revere this lesson too much to forget it. And so that's why it's so critically important that we have an educated and knowledgeable citizenry who know the difference between a democracy and a republic. They know when the, the adversary is planting seeds and being um, their shenanigans. And, and as Madison just highlighted for us, we have to act quickly. That's why we have to know these principles. That's why we have to know about the document. That's why we have to better understand why it was created, what was the intent, so that when error comes, we can recognize it and then do something with it quickly to avoid kind of where we are today. But as we get more involved in these principles and as we get into the Healing of America seminars, the good news is we can systematically put it back together. Okay, Jelena, back over to you to close. You know, I think what the United States did in 2016, electing Donald Trump into office, a man who never held office before, was us exhibiting our right to alter a government that we were not happy with. And I think a, a lot of the, one of the reasons why a lot of people like Trump is because where he stood on this issue of life. And obviously I think probably the most powerful thing he did four years in office is put the justices in office in the Supreme Court who are now willing to uh, overturn this Roe versus Wade because they you know, are opposed to abortion and more aligned with originalists that this should not be a federal decision. That if something is not outlined in the constitution, according to amendments nine and 10, the, our founders wanted it then to be relegated the issue back to the states and to the people respectively in those states to determine. They, they, I'm sure, Julian, they would never have envisioned a time where we would take the life of unborn children. But, and, and so, cause people say, well, it's not addressed in the constitution. I think partly because of that reason. And secondly, nine and 10 covers everything that wasn't, that's why the, the powers in the federal government are few and defined. They specifically point out where their, where their jurisdiction begins and ends and everything else is to be left to the state. So Samuel Leto and his opinion, the draft opinion is right on target. Yeah, yeah. And they, they understand that, that this should have never been. I think even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that this was right. a poorly drafted because it's not really a federal issue. This is this was an issue not addressed in the Constitution. Therefore, it's supposed to be referred back to the states. And, you know, if you're pro-abortion, you move to a pro-abortion state. If you're morally opposed to abortion because it's against God's law, then, you know, you you find yourself in a state that reveres and respects godly law. Do you, do you and, are you fearful? Are you fearful that we, I don't want to use the word civil war, but it, it looks like the blue states are getting bluer and the red states are getting redder. It does seem like uh, there's more and more uh, division in our country. And I think that's exactly what the enemies of freedom want us to do. They want us to implode internally from within and to have all these kind of divisions on, you know, race and sexual identity and gender and that kind of thing. <laughs>
and we're seeing it happen. As we get away from God, we can see that happening. So, you know, I hope that, that you will go back and you will reread these principles again. All right. 11, 12, and 13, and let them sink in these quotes from our founders and from these ancient thinkers over the next 48 hours. You know, the key to memorizing something is repetition and the key to remembering something is reviewing. So please go back and, and reread these three principles. It won't take you long. And, and as you do so, and as you kind of commit, not kind of, commit to memorizing these principles, they will be your best friends. They will rise up in your hour of need when everyone is doom and gloom and divided. And you will be able to provide solutions, right? This is what our founders intended. This is what the establishment of this land was based on. And when you come to a conversation with that tone, you are you help anchor those people around you. And how do we stay anchored in hope? Well, we look to God first and foremost. And I love that Dr. Keith Rose podcast today. He said, look, we don't need to just go uh, back to the constitution. That's not a bad idea, but we need to go to that God of the constitution who, uh, you know, who breathed that, that same breath of God that was breathed into our founding fathers. We need it to be breathed into us. And the only way we do that as we go to God in prayer and as we go to God and study his word, his prophecies, history is God's story. History is the way God deals with his people. And Cleon Skousen said, prophecy is the mold by which history is poured. So if we study God's law and prophecy in his revealed word, then we can have all the confidence in the world that he can do what he says he can do. So if God says in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if people will you know, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways and humble themselves and repent, I will heal their land. That is prophecy. As long as we do our part and he puts our part there, it is turning to him and repenting. And so we don't need to, you know, run to and fro and be so worried and sick because prophecy is the mold by which history is poured. So we study prophecy, which is found in God's word, the Bible and scripture. And we can have all the confidence in the world that we can take God's promises to the bank if we do our part. And he doesn't need a majority of people. He just needs enough to justify the heavens to intervene and to heal this land. And so we go to God in prayer and, and in the word, and then we take our children to, to God in prayer and, and we you know, teach them scripture and we keep that family close and we teach them the best that we can. And it's going to look a little bit different for every family. And then as we do that, as we continue to meet in cottage meetings, whether they're online or we have them in our home, God will help us to know what to do. And that's to do our part, to do something. Maybe we need to make some changes with our closest relationships in our family. Maybe there's something we can do in our community or school systems or at the state capitol and get to know our state legislators. And maybe there's something that will have an impact uh, nationally. Someday I'm going to have to tell you the story how camera crew came into our home and it went to, I think, 10 million people, our family devotional. I was like, 
Now, if you would have told me that would have happened a few years earlier, I would have just laughed. So as you're on your on the wall trying to do your part, you just don't know how God is going to magnify your little efforts and therefore justify the heavens to intervene and to, and to uh, heal our land. So next week, we have principles 14, 15, and 16. They are good ones. <music>